Hey there. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. Today, we arrive at Seven Big Questions, Part 2. Is there a God? Isn't that a great way to start? If somebody says, is there a God? Well, of course, yes, I, I believe that. I think you would probably expect me to say that. But I absolutely believe there's a God, and yet I believe that sometimes we Christians have been known to come on a little strong. We come on a little too hot. Sometimes we start opening the big family Bible and we start shoving it in people's faces, and some people are not really open to that. So I'm doing a little different thing today. I'm going to do a talk based on some of the things that I've been discussing with other people and that I've been discovering from a couple of different pastors and a bundle of books that my brother-in-law gave me 25, 30 years ago that I started reading. Question number one, how do people come to their faith position? I'd like to explore that just a little bit. Questions stir up curiosity. And I'm a curious person. I think a lot of intelligent people are curious. I've just said that I'm intelligent, didn't I? Some people who are intelligent are very curious. My wife would probably say that I'm fairly intelligent, but I'd have to get her to confirm that for you because you don't know me that well. I'm curious. I have an inquiring mind, and inquiring minds want to know. We have questions that we want to see answered. We want to dive in. And sometimes by asking more questions than putting exclamation points at the end of sentences... We stir up curiosity. That's my goal. My number one goal today in this talk is to hopefully stir up enough curiosity in you, a person that I deeply care about, in hopes that you will start trying to follow up on what I've said. Let me break in here and say that we have included a link to a YouTube video from Tim Keller in the description of this podcast if you want to find it there. I think that there's some wonderful things in there, but I want to make you curious. Are you curious yet at all? I hope so. Oh, good. We have one yes. Yay. We're on the right track. All right. As a curious human, I'm curious to know what factors influence a person's decision to come to a faith position. How did they get into that faith position? Was it a lightning strike? Was it a light bulb moment? Were there other factors involved? I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. And then I'd also like to ask this because I'm hoping you'll become curious about it as I was when I first heard it. Would you agree with this statement? That the world is actually becoming more religious and not less. Now, a lot of people I've spoken with have said, oh no, I think the world is becoming far less religious. I see people turning away from the Christian faith by and large. Well, some surveys, recent surveys, have shown the opposite to that. So this kind of shocked me just a little bit. Now, there are pockets in the world today where people are actually turning farther and farther away from God. But overall, surveys are showing that our world is actually becoming more religious and not less. I found that very curious, so I wanted to dig into that just a little bit. In fact, if you could follow this same trend at the same rate that it's been happening, interestingly enough, conversions are actually greater than population growth worldwide. The conversions to some form of religion are actually greater than the population growth. And if it continues at the same rate, 
then those who consider themselves apart from God, if, if they consider themselves, want to use a label, atheist or secular, whatever label they choose for themselves, that number currently is at 17% of the worldwide population. But if it continues at the same rate, that in 35 years it's going to be down to 12%. That means that that piece of the pie that people consider themselves atheistic or secular is shrinking, which means that religion is actually taking up a bigger chunk of the pie. And it's a fairly significant chunk, far more than I would have thought. Now, that doesn't mean Orthodox Christianity necessarily, but it means religion in toto. Also, we can see that Muslim faith is growing faster than population growth, and so is the Christian faith. Now, this, again, is worldwide. So that just piqued my interest. Now, if somebody is tempted to say, I want to be fair in how I'm presenting this, because I would think that you would want me to be fair, and that I'm not just going to throw facts and figures in your face and try to back up my own opinion. I'm trying to be as fair and objective as I can. If somebody would be tempted to say, religion will eventually go away, it's dying. There will come a time when there will be no more religion or belief in a supreme being. I would point to the current studies and say, the evidence is really against that. And if we're going to be scientifically accurate, intellectually honest, we would have to go with the evidence and say, that's not happening. That's not true. So you might feel that you would like it to go that direction, or you may be in a pocket in one of those areas where actually people are becoming less religious, and so it feels to you that that's what's happening. But if you really look at the evidence worldwide, that's not the case. But another thing is true, and again, I'm trying to be fair here, it would be wrong to say religion or belief in God will triumph over the next 35 years, and eventually there will be no atheism because everybody's going to believe. That's also not true. If anything, what I see is a polarization happening, and people are becoming more vocal and more resistant to the other sides if there are debates about these issues that I'm talking about today. So my hope is that I can sit across from a table and drink coffee with somebody that we have very different ideas, and that's okay because we're having a deeply intellectual, stimulating conversation based on curiosity from two people who care about each other and care about the things that we're talking about. As a curious person, I'm intrigued to know how somebody arrives at their position of faith. What causes them to shift in their position like that? I think that even though I've heard some testimonies that people said, oh, it just came to me. And I know a, a former roommate in college who said that, and what he meant by that was, I had a road to Damascus experience. He's referring to a Bible experience where the scales fell from his eyes, he saw the truth, it became clear, it was an epiphany, but there were a lot of steps leading up to that time. So it's a little simplistic for anybody to say, well, I just saw it, it's self-evident, it came to me in a moment. Most people are moved slightly and little bits at a time from one position to another. That's typically how conversion happens, regardless of which side you're converting to in this kind of debate. Neither of those two explanations is really comprehensive. As a curious human, I want to know, well, what are the factors? It's more accurate to realize that both movements, either from secularism to a belief in God or the other way around, involves both faith and reason. Tim Keller a deeply thinking, philosophic, theologic guy out in New York City did what some people thought was the impossible because he went into this bastion of secularism and started a new church several years ago, quite a few years ago, and it's now a strong, thriving church. And they're Bible-believing people, and people thought, how is this happening? 
I think part of why it's happening is that Tim recognized that people use more than just, hey, I'm going to throw a couple of scripture verses at you and you're going to start believing that. He recognized that we need to have deep conversations about intellectual subjects and that people can get moved step by step toward a particular line. And if they see that what they're actually studying makes sense to them, then they can embrace it. And so they're using reason as well as faith. And so Tim is doing that. He's doing a great job. And he's the one who came up with this concept that different faith communities have different lines of orthodoxy. Let me explain what I mean. For a Christian, my line of orthodoxy has to do with what I believe about the sources of our faith. And one of the big sources of our faith is what we would call the Bible, this inspired word. We think it's inspired by God, written down by a bunch of human beings, but rather than being a collection of essays by people and it's disjunct and has no relationship to one another, we actually see themes that go all through the Bible that show what God's redemption looks like. I've done a series on that. In fact, if you want to look up that podcast on Matthew's Gospel, there's only 90 episodes, and you can get through the entire book of Matthew that looks at the life and times of Jesus Christ and what he means to people. It's on our website, lw-cc.org. Also, Tim Keller is saying, but the opposite is true. If you're a part of a faith community that is an atheistic community, then all of a sudden, if you start to have doubts about atheism, And if all of a sudden you come and show up and start talking to some of your friends and colleagues and you say, I'm starting to see some evidence that shows me that I think there's some intelligent design going on in the universe today, and I believe that maybe there just might be this supreme being who is a part of making all this happen because it's too complex for me to be able to buy into the evolutionary theory. You know what's probably going to happen? That person may be ostracized by people within his community his or her community, they may actually be kicked out of certain things because the faith, uh, orthodoxy, and heresy line has been drawn, but it's in the opposite direction for what Christianity is. Do you see what Tim is saying there with that? In other words, for me to be over here in the atheism camp and to start thinking, oh, maybe there's a supreme being, some of these people aren't going to like that, and they're going to push me out. So where am I going to come? Well, I'm probably going to find some people over here that actually do believe that there is a supreme being, and I'm going to start leaning toward hanging out with people like that. And we see that happening, unfortunately, on both sides of this issue. My personal desire, as you might expect, because I find myself on the side that believes in a supreme being, I would love to be able to pull a whole lot of other people over there with me because of the love that I sense from a God who has put all this into motion. That's where I'm coming from. So I'm not here to try to bash you with arguments and to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. I'm here to try to be as loving as I can because I think God is loving and I want to share his love with people in the same way that he shared his love with me. Question number two, can an atheist or a Christian prove definitively that their position is correct? It's a good question. Makes me curious because in college I used to try to find proofs or evidence that I could throw in people's faces so that I could prove to them that I was right. And then I grew up past college and realized that's not really working very well for me. In fact, when I saw some people in a college dorm room invite some other people in to start having a a little study together, a couple of people showed up and they blew that study out of the water because they were so dogmatic and rude in the way they were trying to prove themselves right that the discussion went right out the window. And some of the people that I thought might have started to show an interest in the things that I wanted to talk about left and didn't want to come back because they felt like people had been treated rudely. 
I apologize for that if that's happened to you. I would like to think that there are a few people on this planet who love people enough to say, I'm going to listen more than I talk for the first few times we're together because I want to know what makes you tick. I want to get to know you and I want to really hear from your heart and to find out what's your background. What are the influences that have led you to where you are in your life right now? And then, if I have proven to you that I care about you, I'm hoping that you'll want to listen to me as well so we can have an interchange that's equal, back and forth, and learn from each other, because I think we both have a lot of things we can learn. If you tell somebody that they cannot prove their position because there's no evidence to support it, haven't you just used a statement that's dogmatic and the statement itself can't be supported as being empirically true? I think so. Let me unpack that for you just a little bit. I can't say to you, I'm not going to believe in anything you have to say to me because there's no evidence to support your side of the story. You could say, well, do you know all the evidence that exists? Have you read every book in the world on the subject that I'm talking about so you can tell that there's no evidence contained in those books? Have you been along, uh, alive long enough to be able to look all the way back to when the world was created so you can tell me definitively this is exactly how it happened? None of us can definitively, empirically prove that our side is true or not because we have no access to all the data that's necessary to make that dogmatic kind of a statement. So both things are true, and this starts to level the playing field a little bit. For a Christian to be dogmatic and to say, no, this is right, and it's right because, and then we use all of our, our statements that we're going to try to prove ourselves right, that's dogmatic, and sometimes it can be rude, but it's also not fair for an atheist to say to the Christian, I'm not going to believe in what you have to say because there's no evidence to support it because that's just as dogmatic. So we need to sort of remove dogmatism from the table if we're going to have any kind of intellectual conversation that allows us to continue to connect with one another so that we just don't get out and walk away in a huff. I would hope to make you at least a little curious by suggesting that everybody bases their lives on beliefs that we cannot prove empirically on both sides of this issue. Everybody bases their belief system on things that we cannot necessarily empirically prove, and that's on both the atheist side and the Christian believer's side. Now, let me dive into one particular illustration which I think starts to bring this to bear. When I say belief system, everybody has a belief. Atheists have a belief system. Uh, a former classmate of my eldest daughter is an evangelical atheist. He is trying to convince people that his way is right, and he's trying to convert people from a belief in God to life without God. He's actively engaged in that. And so I would find that if I could sit down with him, his name is Noah, by the way. I like Noah. He's a great kid. Uh, I had some interactions with him when he was in high school and singing in a choir that my daughter sang in. And I would love to be able to sit down with Noah and have this kind of conversation with him because he's an intellectual guy. He's willing to investigate. And I would hope that a guy like Noah would actually even be open to my suggestion that we all have belief systems, and he has a belief system too. He might not use the same terms to describe that, but he has dogma, he has beliefs, and he arrived at those beliefs somehow, and I'd be curious to know how did you get to this particular belief system. For example, and here's the one that I think is very interesting. Where does a secular humanist's assertion that we should all treat humans with dignity come from? Many of the people that I've spoken with who consider themselves secular humanists would say, we need to have social justice. That's a huge term these days. 
We need to make sure that we're treating other humans with respect. We shouldn't uh, misuse them and abuse them with our power or with our knowledge or with our money. We should share the wealth around so that people who don't have as much as we do can be taken well care of. And I'm not saying I don't believe that. I believe that's true as well. But where my faith is coming from is I think that's coming out of a God who's revealed that to us because he is that way. He created us in his image and therefore that grows out of our relationship with a God who wants us to be that way toward one another. In fact, I believe that God's son, Jesus Christ, taught that, that we should even love our enemies, that we should love fellow human beings. So, but let me show you from the opposite side where this is coming from. If somebody says, we came here by random chance, and we came here through evolution, survival of the fittest, if you want to use that simplistic term, so that this cell beat out that cell, this microbe beat up that microbe, the strong ones survived, we finally evolved up the ladder, then it seems to me that it's really a leap of faith to arrive at the point when we say, now let's love each other and take care of fellow human beings. I find that to be a huge leap of faith as opposed to what I would expect to have happen from that evolutionary viewpoint, which is grab for all the gusto you can get and be the strongest because if you're the weakest, you're going to get knocked out. And so if we have no life after this life, get all you can and do all you can in the life that we have. And who cares about other people? That's what I would expect coming out of an evolutionary mindset. Let me quote a letter written by a secular humanist to the New York Times. I found this intriguing. This person writes, when the Hubble Space Telescope pointed to a black, tiny spot in the sky about the size of an eraser for a week. Now, I had to stop and ponder that because I thought the size of, a, of an eraser, pencil eraser, is not very big. And if you point a space telescope, which has some really good capabilities to look millions of miles out there, but that's only one tiny spot. Think of how many other tiny spots like that it takes to make up 360-degree global view. Wow. So think about that. Okay, we're only looking at one eraser-sized tiny spot for a week, right? They found 30,000 galaxies. 30,000. Multiply that by however much other room there is out there that we haven't looked at yet. 30,000 galaxies with many trillions of stars and many, many more inferred planets, which means that it stands to reason if there are that many stars, maybe there are some other planets out there as well. So how significant are you? You're not a unique snowflake. You're not special. You're just another decaying piece of decaying matter on the compost pile of this world. Man, he's really building me up. (laughs) Nothing of who you are or what you do in the short time you are here will matter. Everything short of that realization is vanity. So, he uses the word so, I'm going to explore that in just a minute, celebrate life in every moment. Admire its wonders and love without reservation. Now, what do you normally think of when you think of the word so following several statements like that? Because these things are true, therefore... This is my conclusion. That's what we would normally think of from so, right? The Russian philosopher named Vladimir Solovyov got a little snarky 
when he was trying to show the absurdity of that kind of an argument. He said, man descended from apes, therefore love one another. It doesn't really make sense because that's a leap of faith to come from this worldview to this conclusion. I would actually hope to make you curious enough to say, is it just possible that there is a loving God who created all this for our pleasure and therefore he's the one who has put within us a desire to care for other human beings? I would hope you could just kind of ponder that and think about that just a little bit. I'm not trying to be dogmatic about it. I'm just trying to point out logically, there's no logical way for me to see that you can move from all these things over here, your decaying matter on the compost pile of earth. Therefore, love one another. Celebrate humanity. Think of all the wonders of this world. That, those two just don't seem to go together for me. Here's another thing that Tim Keller has put forth. We had a, a really exciting small group where we were discussing some of Tim Keller's things. And some of the people came up with some great discussions around that. One of the things is that a belief system of any kind is equivalent to religion. People just don't want to use that term religion. But if you have a belief system which you adhere to dogmatically, if you're going to defend that system, that's a form of religion. So if we're going to level the playing field again, then you've got people on an atheistic side of this line. I keep coming over here. You guys are all atheists over here. <laughs> Because every time I step over here, I'm talking to the atheist, and I love you. I love you. I really do. I care about you. That's why I'm talking to you this way. So we got the atheists over here who have a dogmatic set of beliefs, so they trust in something, right? If you say, I trust in science, I trust in empirical evidence, whatever, you trust in something, so that's a religion. And I think it's only fair for us to try to level the playing field by being accurate in how we describe stuff like that. We, who are Christians, say, yes, we have a belief system, and we call it a religion because it's a form of a relationship with a God who reveals himself, and we have some written word that we can study. All that's a part of our religion, too, but we both trust in something. That's where Tim Keller is going with that, and I agree with that. And neither side can prove empirically that their belief system is correct. Reason, emotion, and cultural influence all come to bear on how we make our decisions and what we believe in. If you grew up in a place where you had lots of people pouring into your life about a particular belief system, chances are that's going to influence you in how you believe, right? That just stands to reason. That makes sense. But we can also use reason. We can think about those things. Sometimes we can push back against what people are telling us, and we can say, no, I disagree with that. And we use emotion as a part of what drives some of what we do and what we believe. All of that comes into bear. That's why in the little time I have left, are these phenomena evidences of an intelligent designer? I'm only saying that because there are several things that have, in my reading, thanks to a brother-in-law who started giving me books to read 30 years ago, he got me hooked on it, and I, I couldn't get enough of that stuff. There was a, a season of my life there where I was reading everything I could about these kinds of evidences and what would be con considered intelligent design. I would like to put these forth to hopefully pique your curiosity and let you to ask the question, are these phenomena evidences of an intelligent design? The first one, the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio. One of my good friends and a person at this church gave me a book to read a few months ago, it made my brain hurt. It was so scientific and mathematic that about 80% of it probably went right over my head, and yet it's fascinating 
about the golden ratio and the Fibonacci sequence. And you can see in this slide several expressions of how we can see this ratio played out. It's an amazing phenomenon. It's just astounding to see how this is portrayed in all these different evidences of nature. Now, if you believe in entropy, which means that things tend to go from a state of order to a state of disorder, why then do we continue to see this much complexity repeated in different forms with such mathematical accuracy? And it's a thing of beauty in the process. It's an amazing thing. For me, because I'm on this side of the line and say, I just have to believe that that's evidence of an intelligent designer at work who put all that into play in the first place. Another thing, the human eyeball. This, to be fair, was something that really became a vexation and a source of anxiety for Darwin. He writes, to suppose that the eye with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. It was really troubling for Darwin, who was trying to make sense of what he thought was this theory of evolution. Now, to be fair, he goes on to write. I don't want to grab that out of context. He also had said, if I could find evidence of some lower form of eyeball and could see a progression, then maybe I could think that perhaps it was plausible, even though highly improbable. So even he was really struggling because there's so many systems that have to be in play with all the things that take place in a human eyeball. It's just astounding. And I think it's evidence of intelligent design. The music of Bach. I could have said music in general, but I'm basing this on something that happened during a Jan term when I was a sophomore in college and we had a musical experience out on the west coast of California. We went to Stanford University in 1977, and I sat through a lecture that was fantastic. This guy was a physicist, a mathematician, and a violinist. And he was demonstrating with an oscilloscope how certain notes can have constructive and destructive interference. So that with constructive interference, if you play two tones together, there were enough overtones that would amplify one another that the amplitude of a sine wave would more than double. And he said, now, I'm going to put on my overhead transparencies. This was before video technology was really huge, and they would put on these little plastic sheets over the overhead projector. And he was showing pages that he was playing from in box oratorios. Every time they would get to a word, God or glory, things like that, he would have put in some double stops with a particular chord. The amplitude would go huge, and you would have a visceral effect in your body physiologically because of the physics involved in that. It was amazing. And this is at Stanford University. And I came away with that by thinking, okay, did Bach have an oscilloscope? No. How did he come to this conclusion? Did he play certain notes and have a notebook that said, okay, this is how this note makes me feel, so I'm going to use that every time I come to... How did he do that? Or was he inspired, maybe even inspired by an unknown source to say, hey, I manufactured all this in the first place. I'm the one who invented physics. I, am, I invented matter. And I can make it do whatever I want to, and so I can inspire this composer to compose things so that even that becomes something to reflect my glory to other people. 
Good questions to ask. My daughter, the eldest of my three children, had said in response to my question, which I put out earlier through social media, that she was amazed that as my two grandsons were being formed one at a time, they, we did, she didn't have twins, I had to clarify that, that each time they would start to form and she knew she was expecting a child, she would start to look up in these different online things about, okay, how big is my child now? She said, even at the size of a pea pod, they had perfectly formed fingerprints. And she would say the things she would discover about that made her marvel at the fact that these human cells would have so much information in them that they would use to replicate and change and morph into this thing called a human being starting that small, that young. It boggled her mind, and it boggles my mind too. And I might say that she produced some pretty incredibly good-looking grandsons too out of that. At a bare minimum, the complete human genome is about 20 gigabytes. Now, that's a conservative number. Other scientists have estimated that the genome is between 50 and 100 gigabytes of info in a single human cell. Now, again, with entropy, doesn't information tend to degrade over time? If that's true, if things go from a state of order to a state of disorder, how is it that all of these things continue to replicate? They get information from something else that commands it to go over here and do this and do that and all these systems and functions so that a human being can form that way. I think it's so complex that to me it screams intelligent design. Then irreducible complexity. I'm glad that Stephanie put this out in social media last week because this is one of my favorite examples of irreducible complexity. Think of a mousetrap. If you remove any one of its simple parts, the whole thing fails. Same thing is true, I think, of a woodpecker. It has so many things that if it would have had to have come together exactly the way it was designed because you couldn't have one thing growing and developing and morphing or adapting while the rest weren't. For example, it has some shock absorber in its skull because there are hundreds of pounds per square inch of force as it rams that beak into trees. Brrr, you can hear it. It sounds like a jackhammer in a forest. Otherwise, if it didn't have that shock absorber that had formed, splat, end of species. Or it's got that long tongue to reach into the hole in the tree to get whatever insects are in there. Where does that tongue go? Well, it's got to wrap around through a sheath that wraps all the way around behind its head. What happened if that is not fully formed right away in the first couple of iterations of the woodpecker? It's flying around. Its tongue is hanging out there. It gets wrapped around a tree limb. It's, a, it's an intelligent design disaster if it wasn't made all at the same time. So I think irreducible complexity is another one of those factors that if you start looking into it, I get curious and I think, oh, what a great concept. So let me turn my attention in the final couple of minutes here. Let me turn my attention directly to a potential listener. Let's say that I'm sitting across from Noah, my friend, who has laughed with me and shared a cup of coffee, and he understands that I have his best interests at heart. And he could say, you know, let's have coffee again because you're a lot of fun to hang around with and I can tell you really do care about me. So let's say that I'm talking to Noah right now. I would say, I hope you can tell that I really do care about you and that I'm not here to make my case so that I can feel more powerful or more right than anybody else. I'm sharing with you something that's meaningful to me because of what I believe in. It's my belief system. And my belief system comes from a God who revealed himself to me 
and wants me to share his kind of love and grace with other people so that as many of us as possible can be with him one day for eternity. Because the kind of God that forms my belief system is a God who wants to give us that which will give us the greatest satisfaction for the longest possible period of time. And that means that if somebody believes that evolution got us where we are and there's nothing that happens after this life, this life is all we have, I would say, oh, I think there's so much more. And I want you to come with me. I want you to be with me in that eternity that God has in store for everybody who believes. Let me end with a couple of quotes. Sir Isaac Newton wrote this. This most beautiful system of the sun, the planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as the Lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is want or accustomed to or deserving to be called Lord God, Sir Isaac Newton. And then this, these are the lyrics from that song, Sarah Groves writes this. I'm trying to work things out. I'm trying to comprehend. Am I the chance result of some great accident? I hear the rhythm call me, the echo of a grand design. I spend each night in the backyard staring up at the stars in the sky. Maybe this was made for me, for lying on my back in the middle of a field. Maybe that's a selfish thought. Or maybe there's a loving God. Maybe I was made this way, to think and to reason and to question and to pray. And I've never prayed a lot, but maybe there's a loving God. And then let me also leave you with these two very brief verses that come from that Bible that I've mentioned a couple of times. One of them comes from Psalm 19.1. The New Living Translation says, The heavens, the same heavens that Sarah was staring up at in her song from her backyard, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The same heavens that you can look at through the Hubble telescope with an eraser-sized pinpoint and find 30,000 galaxies. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. And then also from Romans 1.20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. If that's true... And of course, I'm on this side of that line, so I believe it is. Then I would just hope to pique your curiosity enough to get you to stand outside in your backyard and stare up at the sky for a while and ask yourself, is there a loving God who made all this for me? As I conclude, let me turn your attention to that link that we included in the description of this podcast so you can listen to Tim Keller. He goes into much more detail than I had time to go into today. And let me also recommend a couple of books. There are a couple of books by Lee Strobel. One is A Case for the Creator, and the other is A Case for Faith. And then a couple of books by Tim Keller as well. Anything he's written is going to be great, and it's going to point you in the right direction. Making Sense of God is one that I lifted some material from for this talk. And uh, if you want to interact with us, feel free and contact us through our website, 
there's a contact page. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to hear how this message uh, affected you, whether good or bad. We'd just like to hear from you. Feel, feel free and do that. And know that we're thinking about you, and we're really grateful that you listened to this message. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.